Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Encero, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Older and poorer Americans are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic. In this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Dr. Richard Shinto, President and CEO of InnovaCare Health, about the company's efforts to manage the health of its Medicare Advantage and Medicaid beneficiaries in Puerto Rico during the past few months. He last spoke with us two years ago about the effect that Hurricane Maria had on the organization and its members. In today's podcast, he shares how coping with the aftermath of the 2017 hurricane assisted them with the current national health emergency. So welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Shinto. Thank you. It's great to be on the, to speaking with you today and just kind of catching up on healthcare during this pandemic. We last spoke to you about InnovaCare Health's efforts in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And I believe there you're the largest Medicare Advantage plan on the island. Is that right? Yes, we are. Actually, we're the eighth largest Medicare Advantage health plan in the country. Oh. So we've really grown over the last couple of years. And you also do Medicaid managed care as well, correct? Yes. uh, We're one of the, there's four participants on the island and we're one of the four and we have probably about 25% of the the lives on the Medicaid population. And that's why one of the, um, the depth of our company has to do with we manage a lot of the duels, so we have a lot of the Medi-Medis enrolled into our Medicare Advantage plan, too. A lot of experience there. And for people who may be listening who are unfamiliar with that term, can you just explain what that means and how that relates to perhaps more complex, uh, more intensive healthcare needs? Sure. You know, when you think about um, Medicare and you think about Medicare Advantage um, that that population is, are the MA, what we call MAPD, but over the course of time, because of the special needs plans, and special needs plans were, were started for chronic disease, and another one was started for the dual eligibles, or what we call the Medi-Medis. So these patients, uh, these members have both Medicare and Medicaid. Very common in the states, really started to um, grow. That segment of the population grew, especially with the exchange population coming through. And so we're seeing that as a very, um, a very large population of the Medicare of the of Medicare beneficiaries. But more importantly, that population has a lot of high um, chronic disease and a lot, a lot of comorbidity. So the the management, the intensity of management, is really up, uh, significantly upgraded with the population of the Medicare and Medicaid. And, and we've done a very good job of looking at that, breaking it down, understanding the population, and building a lot of programs directly to de- address social determinants, medication, and all, all, all aspects of the continuum of care for patients that really need significant, significantly more than just seeing a doctor or getting some, some treatments. And this is also the population that is more vulnerable to the effects of getting the coronavirus 2019 disease. Yeah, um, if you think about well, one Medicare, all Medicare advantages, um, um, higher, um, higher exposure, higher um, um, uh, prevalence of disease, 
but with the, when you look into the population of many medis, most of them have what well, we have uh, underlying chronic disease with significant comorbidities. On the island of Puerto Rico, I think mean, something close to 40, 40% of our population have diabetes and significant number of comorbidities associated with it. And that was one of the reasons when the, the pandemic first started, we were very concerned about how hard the island would be hit by COVID, uh, by coronavirus. And it's, you know, it's interesting about reaction or lack of, I think the governor of Puerto Rico did an excellent job of reacting by shutting down the island. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but the first case of COVID on the island really came from an Italian tourist on one of the cruise ships. So her goal was to uh, shut down the ports and then just shut all access to the island. She even made an attempt to um, shut down the airports, which she couldn't, she had no control over that. But as a result of that, if you look at the number of infections, the number of um, um, corona-positive patients, and the number of deaths, it's significantly lower than the rest of the United States. Last time I heard it was like 129, 130. Right. How badly is Puerto Rico affected in terms of coronavirus cases and infections? I think it's, um, you know, the the interesting thing, uh, I was asked this question last week, which I think is very interesting. One of the reasons that the um, prevalence and the incidence of coronavirus is very low on the island is one, um, a lot of alignment between the on the political side by the governor aligning with the health plans, aligning with the providers in the hospitals. On the island, we knew we did not have the number of ICU beds nor the number of ventilators that would actually, if, if 10% of the population got hit with uh, coronavirus or whatever percentage that may be, we did not have capacity, nor did we have the um, specialists with the, the level of sophistication that managed that complex, the, the complexities of the ARDS and end stage and a lot of significant uh, um, uh, complications from uh, the pulmonary complications that come with COVID. And so shutting down the island, shutting down the number of infections really did a lot. If you actually look at the census in the hospitals, they're probably half what they normally should be. Um, if you look at the number of providers that are at, uh, out there providing care, they're all available to provide care, but the number of patients they're actually seeing has gone down significantly. Back in the very beginning, probably in the 1st of March, so there was already curfews. No one could be out after 11 o'clock, and then, and then went down to about 7, 8 o'clock at nighttime until the morning. And then as, it, as, the, as everybody was watching across the United States, the, the increase in the prevalence of coronavirus the government got even more rigorous, and then it was you could only be out if you had certain um, if you had if you were an essential provider or you had essential credentials, and if you were out going shopping, you could only shop on certain days based upon your license plate. So there was a lot of aggressive intervention by the government because they knew they had no capacity to manage a high number of cases. But again, the alignment between the health plans, the hospitals, and the providers was significant to keep everything in check. And I think that's one of the, I always talk about one of the positive things that has happened on the island is the alignment by the different um, segments of the, of the workforce. And can you describe some of the initiatives your company put in place in Puerto Rico to continue to serve its members during the pandemic? Yeah, you, know, you know, it's interesting. I, I was asked um, about this a while back and, um, about my experience 
um, about the hurricane. And one of the things we learned about in the hurricane, a couple of things very quickly. One is um, quick response time. Number two, um, supply chain. And number three, you have to maintain the healthcare infrastructure. So even when the hurricane came, we advanced paid all the providers for at least a couple of months. Even the fee-for-service doctors, it didn't matter. We went into our systems. We tracked how much we were, had been paying the doctor the previous six months and came up to an average by the provider and then sent them a check. Same thing with the hospitals. And, this, and during the pandemic, we made the same aggressive decision. Very quickly move all our employees to their home. So we had um, we have 3,500 employees. Within four days, they were all work at home. But we stayed constantly in communication with the providers we had outreach programs, and then we advanced paid all the doctors. And, and it, today we're still advanced paying the doctors. So they're still getting their monthly capitation checks. They're still getting their monthly payments. The hospitals have gotten their checks. To, and, and again, alignment. The government asked us to intervene with the hospitals. We sat down with the hospitals. We negotiated with them what a good advanced payment would be. And we've been able to do that very successfully. So patients have never been... Um, without access to care. If they needed something, their doctors were available because they have, they're, they're, they're being paid. And, um, and the hospitals are constantly open. It's just that a lot of people don't want to go to the hospitals and, and doctors have had um, um, some difficulty in getting patients to move from face-to-face -face visits to um, telemedicine. But as that progresses, we're seeing more and more alignment. And that's another thing our company has aggressively done is we've gone really into telemedicine and televisits, and it's been it's been working well. I mean, in our in our Florida-based markets, uh, almost I would say if we were seeing 1,500 patients in a week, we're now seeing 1,200 um, virtually. So our, uh, we've done a we've taken very aggressive and progressive position on how to take care of the patients and keep them safe, and and that's had a good outcome for us. Are there certain challenges that Puerto Rico has in terms of telemedicine and telehealth, given some infrastructure issues, you know, the rural areas, how, and how did you overcome those? You know, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that we looked at, and as you guys know, after the hurricane, um, Google brought in their entire system to help give us, get the island reconnected and so that we could reposition internet. After, and then as they rebuilt the island, these, the towers haven't been as strong as they need to be. I mean, a, a, a big disaster right now would be if a hurricane came through because the, system, the healthcare system, the entire island is so brittle. But we, what we did was we, we connected as many doctors to the beneficiaries and patients as needed. We um, opened up all of our call centers. We expanded as much as we could. And then we worked with the medical groups to open up clinics so that they can get COVID testing, they can see physicians. And we wanted to make sure we kind of connect, get everybody connected. But here's what we did as a health plan that I think you don't see too often. We aggressively went to the beneficiaries because most all of our patients are, most of our patients are seniors and we told them to stay at home. So we had home delivery of all medications, we had home delivery of over-the-counter drugs, and we had home delivery of food. And we were able to work each one of those segments 
into the population and what they needed. And we had already, fortunately for us, we were already taking a position that we wanted the patients to have more home care and more home delivery. Because you get into the mountains where it's pretty rural, it's very difficult because of lack of transportation to get out of the mountains and down into the city to pick up their prescriptions. So what we did is we started putting a program together with all the pharmacies to home deliver medications. Our biggest, one of the, one, one area that has had the best outcome for us has been over-the-counter medications. So if they need aspirin, they need alcohol swabs, we're able to do that. And since we really keep track of um, supply chain, a lot of patients that are beneficiaries in our networks were able to get um, things that you probably couldn't get in the pharmacies because we had it, we had it, um, we had the supply chain in our warehouses to be able to deliver that out. And, and as a result of that, again, supply chain thinking ahead, we ordered masks, we ordered gloves, and then we put that into the warehouse. And again, um, patients are able to go online and get gloves and masks through our distribution centers. And it's done a, it's been a, it, I can't tell you the, um, the positive feedback from the members of having access to that. When, you know, people in their, probably other people in their family don't have access to it. So a lot of ordering for other members of their family. And I think we've done a really good job of, um, one, preparing, two, um, handling the entire pandemic. And now we're looking at the other side of what the needs of the members are going to be getting back as they start to try to get back and get mobilized again. And are these things you will carry forward into your, you know, routine operations? I'm thinking hurricane season is starting again yeah. shortly. Yeah, one of the things we learned, and I had said this previously, is supply chain. I think we did, we did a great job um, of supply chain. And after the hurricane, we saw what happened. Uh, we have our warehouses that, it's not, we're not using the term stockpile because we don't do that, but we have enough uh, supplies and we work with other vendors that we know that in the event of any disaster, our, our company feels very comfortable about being prepared um, for supplies that are needed. You know, one of the other things that we went into were providing groceries because the members, again, couldn't leave their home. So we gave them options. They could either um, pay a certain amount and then they would have groceries delivered to their home or they could actually pay another price and they would get prepaid, uh, uh, pre, uh, prepared dinners. So they get two meals um, per day and we come in a, in a, into a packet and just put that in your refrigerator and then you can microwave it or take it apart and warm it up on the stove. So we've, we've done a lot and we're continuing that and we're gonna enhance it even to the point that right now we're looking, cause it's been so important about telecommunications and having a good phone having good connectivity that uh, one of, I know our, one of our benefits coming out now is going to be um, providing phones for members that take part in certain parts of our planned products. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Would the phones be used for digital health or well, yeah. apps to track things? Or One is um, we've learned very well about um, we have our own apps for our members. We have our own apps for our providers. So we're loading those onto the phones. Um, I like, and I've been pushing very hard for texting. I think texting is a great way of going. And for members, it's, it's an easier way of communicating for members. And it's an easier way for people to get a faster turnaround instead of waiting on a call. 
So we're, we're embedding all this into the system. We've, we've done very well, especially in our Florida operations, about moving doctors to telemedicine. We need to improve the experience and uh, of the providers so that they'll get more engaged in that and use it more. I, I don't think it should be the replacement of, a, of, a, of a, an office visit, but it does serve like for maybe half your visits, they could be um, telephonically or televisits through um, looking onto screens. So we, we really believe there's value there. We also believe there's value in connecting them so that they need their over-the-counters. Right now, if they wanna get aspirins or they wanna get um, a Vaseline or Vicks or whatever they want, they just go onto our site and they have an account and they're able to dial in how many, what supplies they need and those supplies will be delivered to their home within you know what maybe at the most 48 hours. They don't have to wait long. On the island, the, the mail delivery isn't as good as just directly just putting it all into a truck and driving it into the mountains and delivering. And we've worked out some really good contracts to, um, to allow the patients to get it that way. And we've also now worked out a good, great contract with the U.S. Postal Service because they've become a lot more flexible in trying to provide other ways of delivering supplies or whatever we've negotiated with them to deliver because of the capacity by the U.S. Postal Service. So there's a lot that we've been doing, but we need a connector, and it's not going to be through a laptop. The best connector for us is just to do an iPhone. Your company also won an award recently from, uh, a, I think it's a foundation called the Barrel Institute. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know the company uh, won an award for experience and member experience. And uh, we're always measuring that. We've, uh, if you look at our MPS scores, they're, they're very high. Um, there's an expectation in the company that we have to meet the needs of the, of the beneficiaries and the providers. That's why if you look at the way I built the company, we have an, an entire area that's devoted to the member and we have another area um, devoted completely to the provider. Um, each one has different needs and different expectations. By doing that, you're not getting it to be convoluted. So all of a sudden, some you're, you're trying to address a member just needs when it's a provider issue or a, a provider's issue and when it's a member just asking some basic questions. As a result of that, service has gotten better, outcomes have gotten better, but more, more importantly, when you look at MPS scores and the experience by the beneficiary, it's been well demonstrated that uh, the, the the strategy that we built the company on has, has done very well. I think we're really curious in how uh, providers and plans are adapting right now and perhaps what changes that have happened that they would like to keep uh, using as we move forward through this crisis. Telehealth is one of the I, most, often, most often mentioned ones that we hear about. I think one of the, one of the most interesting outcomes from the pandemic are a couple. I think number one is awareness. I, I think the population never was aware of the complexity of disease and what a pandemic can do. I think that that's a good thing. I think people are becoming, uh, that awareness causes education and people are understanding the complexities of healthcare again and how they need to learn a little bit more about it. I mean, 
you you could think about the beginning of your ask of uh, any and a lot of people in the in the world what's the between the epidemic and um a pandemic i mean they, they would first it ask you what are you talking about but there is a lot going on from the point of view of awareness and education i think that's great i think the thing that for the providers what's going on is how to do healthcare different one of the problems with healthcare is it moves too slow and nobody really wants to make big changes. They make little changes and you hear about all this technology and all this pharma, but nobody really changes anything. What happened with the pandemic was like it broke loose this ice flow and it allowed everything to start moving and it forced CMS to react to it. They built waivers. They looked at other options to provide care. There was never really a great option on telemedicine by CMS. As a result of that, it's here and it's not gonna go away. And that's good. And there's a lot of good things that are gonna come out of this pandemic. And one is, it's gonna be the cadence of moving healthcare decisions a lot more quickly. Thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. No, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. For more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, visit info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.